morning, kids. Right off the bat, I got to tell you, tis the season. It is the season of the graduations, all right? We at Redemption Church have had a number of graduates, kindergarten, elementary school, but also high school and college, right? So all sorts of people have been graduating. I think we have some pictures of some of our graduates, maybe somewhere in that build in there. We'll find out. There's some of our graduates right there. Super awesome. Congratulations to all of our graduates. We know we have other people maybe graduated that didn't get their picture sent in or whatever else, but we're super thrilled for everybody as they kind of go to that next level of life. And here in a minute, I'm going to go ahead and pray for all of our graduates because, again, they're going out into the real world, and that's going to shape them and change them. But we really pray and hope that God will use them as well to make much of Jesus and his kingdom in the world. And so exciting times for all those families. Congratulations to all of you. Uh, the second thing I want you to, re to know and be reminded of is today— is Election Sunday, all right? And what we mean by that is we are doing a brand new series here in the month of July called The Five of July. And if you go on the app, and I'm going there right now, and you scroll down, there's a tile that says the 5 of July. And if you tap on that tile, it's your opportunity to vote. And here's what I want you to know. As soon as you go there, at the top it may say download an app. Don't do that. Cross out of that. You don't want that, right? And as soon as you just put in your kind of top three things that you hope that I deal with for the month of July, uh, then it's going to tally it. We'll get a sense of which ones are kind of leading the pack and that kind of deal. It's going to be super cool. And what we decided to do, instead of just giving you one vote, we decided to treat you like a dead grandma in Florida. You get three votes when you vote, because uh, that's how it works sometimes. We know, we got it, I get it, right? So anyway, that's kind of an option for you, and so by tonight, the deadline is midnight. Once that happens, we close it out. The top five of the month is what we're going to kind of get into and that kind of deal. Uh, actually, Amy Glover said, well, if the book of Revelation wins, you should do that next Sunday so you can say you've done all of John's stuff. And I'm like, that's great. That's true. I could do that. So uh, anyway, might do that as well. We'll see what happens. So that's the second thing. And then the third thing, again, today is also a deadline for our, our, our stretch goal for the hub. Uh, what we've been trying to do now for the last series of weeks is raise $440,000. Tonight at midnight is also the deadline for that, if you want to give to that. And uh, currently, here's where the number sits, 390000 Now, here's the thing. Since I made this slide, another 10000 has come in. So now we're, we're, we're less than $40,000 away. So I know for me, I'm going to go home today. I'm going to get on the app. I'm going to give to this campaign. I hope you do as well, uh, because again, we're so close to the goal. It's fantastic that way. Thank you for your generosity and just your, your giving spirit as a church. Uh, it's what's making all of this possible down there on Main Street. So good things going on all the way around. It struck me this morning. I'm like, a year from now, We'll be doing all of this in our own building. That is so cool, right? So, like, honestly, I'm like, no more setup and teardown and, and a kid's classroom that doesn't double as a science lab through the rest of the week. And I love, I love that the school has given us access. We are so grateful for that. But boy, it's going to be so awesome to have that as well. So I'm going to go ahead and pray for us this morning. Pray for our graduates, and then we're going to get right to business. Jesus, I thank you so much for your truth. I thank you so much for your grace and generosity toward us. And I pray that we are just simply faithful to you in all that you would have us do. 
I pray that especially for our graduates that are kind of being flushed out into the world and and they're going to face a whole new leveling up. And I pray that you will guide them, be with them, show yourself strong on their behalf and work in their hearts and lives so that again, they can, they make much of you and they are truly agents of transformation to show the beauty of your grace and your love and truth applied in people's lives in such a way that, man, it's just profound. And so we look to you to lead them and bless them and guide them, and we look to you to bless and guide all of us today as we enter into your word. So we thank you, Jesus, for the grace and love you show us, and I pray that we are faithful in your truth to do those things that you call us to. So we look to you now in your good and perfect name. Amen. All right, today is the final day of our series. We started back in February, Divided We Stand, how we're to be unique and distinct in our world so that we can live out the truth of God in our life through the loving spirit of Christ into the lives of others. That's been the essence. And so we've been going through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Or if you're from the UK, you might say 1, 2, and 3 John, which is kind of cool, right? And so today is going to be 3 John. But here's what we know about all of this. All of John's letters, they hang in a lot of ways on his gospel. And so that message that John provides to the world is big and bold and beautiful. That God comes into the world in the person of Christ. He fully reveals the Father to us and reveals to us in that spirit, this is love, this is truth, and this is life. And it's for all of us that are living in between Eden and eternity, right? The the challenges between the bookends is what John writes to. And so he tells the story of Jesus. And as he does so, and early Christians are reading that story, they're moved, they're transformed. It's answering deep questions of the soul, and it resonates and creates a movement. But there's also questions that emerge with his gospel, right? Because in life, you're working through things and different challenges kind of arise and you got to figure out what to do next. And so from that, people said, John, we have questions. We need you to apply what your gospel is all about. And what I love about his applications as we've been going through it is it kind of narrows an intimate focus. What I mean by that is like in 1 John, it's a very universal piece of literature, right? It's not to a particular church. It seems to be to this very broad region, and it deals with what it means to love God and love people just like Jesus. And there was a lot of theology and some philosophy and some challenges in there, but it's very, very universal in scope. And then we get to Second John, and it becomes more intimate. And, and, and there, it's actually he's writing to a church, And he's trying to encourage this church to strive in the truth and maintain love because there's still people that are coming in and wanting to redefine Jesus. And so he's trying to stand up for that, but doing it in a way that's still loving to the people around you. So from that, you narrow the scope a little bit more, and it's about loving God in an applicational way. But then you get to 3 John, and it is profoundly intimate. It's not universal. It's not to a local church. It's really a dude writing to a dude about another derpy dude, and he's going to have a dude bring that letter to the dirt about the derpy dude, right? Like that. Okay, so it's a four-person story, basically. Four characters that emerge. Now, from this, the two primary characters would be what we might call the antagonist and the protagonist in the story. So John would be the protagonist, And a guy named Diotrephes would be the antagonist. And and we have some graphics for this because you want to understand that each of these guys is a leader of a church. So at this point, John the Apostle seems to be leading the church in Ephesus. 
So Paul started that church. Timothy then kind of is the second generation pastor of the church. But now John stepped in pretty late in the game, and he seems to be leading from that space. And then there's another leader in a church, and we don't know if he's the technical leader, he's assumed leadership, but Diotrephes, he's set up in this other space, and yet they are at odds. If anything, it's kind of like this, this power squeeze dynamic thing in play. It's a struggle that they're going through. And at the core of the struggle is that John has one sense of, hey, this is how we should do ministry. This is how we should handle missions. And then Diotrephes is like, no, I don't agree. I'm doing it totally different. So what we have at the core is not this uh, doctrinal divide. If anything, what we have is a practical or relational divide between these two leaders. Now, when one's an apostle and one's not, you probably are going to favor the apostle, right? That's pretty normal, and we should in this context, and we're going to see that in a minute. But that's what's going on. And, and I bring this up because I think it, it's very easy to think that, okay, if John is against Diotrephes, it must be a problem of truth. But in this context, it's a little bit more a problem of love. If anything, they probably would agree on many truths. John never calls out Diotrephes as a guy that doesn't believe in Christ, doesn't believe the right doctrine. He doesn't deal with that. It's, it's a relational, ideological difference on how you do things, but there is divide. But it's good for us to remember this in the context of John's letters, because what's he been making a big deal about? That love and truth must be intention. You must maintain both equally. And for whatever set of reasons, maybe Diotrephes is like, you know what? Truth is more important than love, and so I don't have to love John because I'm holding to what I think is the truth over here. And John's like, no, if you lose truth, you lose love, and if you lose love, you lose truth. you got to keep them together. And so there is this kind of confrontation that's happening. So this is in play between these two guys. Now, in the middle of this is a third personality, and it is Gaius. And Gaius is the person that John is going to write this letter to. And Gaius is either in Diotrephes' church or very adjacent to it. So whatever's going on, Gaius is affected by the, the decisions of Diotrephes and what he's pushing. And so there's tension for him as well. And then there's this fourth character, Demetrius. And it seems John is going to write a letter, give it to Demetrius. Demetrius is going to take it to Gaius to deal with the problems of Diotrephes. At this point, you're like, whoa, that's a game of telephone, man. That's a lot of moving parts with four people. And it is. And what I know from what we see in the letter here in a little bit is that John didn't want this big circle. John's tried to work with Diotrephes and to talk with them. But Diotrephes is like, dude, I'm not dealing with you. I want no part of you, man. Right? So, so now, because things have gotten so complicated and so divisive in the church that Diotrephes is a part of and how it's affecting Gaius— uh, you see the aging apostle has to step in, right? Diotrephes is like, hey, old man, pound sand. We're not going to have you here. And, and, and John's like, nah, we got to work this through, and we got to figure out a solution. And so now you got the lay of the land. you got the cast of characters. You get the sense of the problem. So we're all now going to engage in a federal cr crime, and we're going to read somebody else's mail. We're going to open it up and read it, because that's what it is. One guy writing to another guy. And so it starts with the first thing in your notes, if you're taking notes with us this morning. John the mentor, the old seasoned wise man, right? He says, this letter is from the elder. And we learned about this last week. This idea is just more, it's the old man. It's tender. It's gracious. He's the last of the living apostles to the best of our knowledge. 
and he's seen a lot and he's been through a lot and now he's in the twilight of his life but what he's doing is he's investing into the next generation he's coaching and helping and shaping and molding what second generation and third generation christianity is going to be all about so he's staying in the pocket he doesn't decide to retire and punch out and just enjoy life on an island someplace for the twilight years no he's still thoroughly engaged he wants to make sure that things are anchored and so he's playing the role of mentor and he's a mentor in an interesting time like i was thinking about this this week as far as like the first 40 to 50 years of Christianity, right, that, that he was a part of, man, it went through a lot. I mean, just as an individual, right, he went from being very Hebrew-minded, Jewish law, again, like just 613 rules to live by and all this, and then was suddenly thrust into this new way of seeing God, this new way of understanding the Messiah. He could eat bacon now, like all this stuff. Like, what a transformation, and then on top of that, within just a few years, the Jewish-dominated church says, we're open to the Gentiles, and they're going to come in. And they're going to do things a little differently than we do, and they're not going to be held to the same things that maybe we're held to, but we've got to figure out how to make this work. And so they went through the white water of that. And then on top of it, man, the church was hunted. Locally or throughout the empire, those challenges. And then internal strife, division, doctrinal disputes, you name it, they faced a lot. And here he is at the end, after all of that life investment, going, oh, and there's still things to work through and deal with. 2,000 years later, it's still true. We're always growing, always learning, always adapting, always repenting and course correcting. And, and so he has to do that in this context here. And so it's the letter from the elder. He says, and I'm writing to Gaius, my dear friend, whom I love in the truth, or I truly love. Like it's, again, just this, this pouring out heart to Gaius. So they have some relationship in the past. What I love about this is when it says, my dear friend, uh, a, probably a better rendering would be my beloved. And I dig this because you remember way back when John was rolling with Jesus? Remember what Jesus called John? My beloved disciple. And it's like John's now paying that same idea forward. My beloved disciple Gaius, the one who's learning from me, the one who is growing to be more like Christ. I just think it's beautiful how Jesus just kind of uses the same terminology for this good friend of his. And so, if John is the, the mentor, then that makes Gaius the minion. Now you go, minion? I know what a minion is. It's a little yellow dude, right? Like, is that who he is? Like, minions are like suck-ups. Minions just do whatever they're told. They don't have any brain. Here's the, the original definition of a minion. A minion was a favorite, a darling, one who is beloved. The earliest use of this word refers to someone who is a particular favorite of a sovereign or other important personage, a favored or highly regarded person, right? So before we turned it into a pejorative, it was a praise. It was like, I'm connected to you. I want to execute what it is you call me to do. And that is the spirit of Gaius. And what I also love is that Gaius' names literally means one who rejoices. Which if you've ever watched the minions, they love to just smile and laugh all the time. They rejoice incessantly. So I'm like, this dude is a minion. In the most perfect, pure, great way. And so the old man is writing a letter to Mr. Sunshine here. And he says, dear friend, I hope all is well with you and that you are as healthy in body as you are in spirit. Now, this may not seem like much to you, but 
But to me, I, I read that and I go, man, I really appreciate that because it's kind of a window in the New Testament you don't often get, right? Uh, so oftentimes the New Testament is about doctrine or about obedience or about, you know, again, the ways we behave and that kind of thing. Here's this little instance where I think John even knows like, hey, when you're under stress and there's a lot of anxiety, you feel it in your body. Right? And he knows that Gaius is under a great deal of pressure. And John's been in that space too. And whether you want to or not, you cannot kind of extract your, your, your brain from your body. You can't extract your emotions from what's going on in your overall physical well-being. And so I think he just even gives a nod to that. Like, I hope you're holding up because I know that there is a ton of pressure. Right? John's felt it. He knows it. And so he gives this little nod of encouragement. I hope you're holding up mentally and emotionally and spiritually. From this, he jumps into the context of the letter. He says, Some of the traveling teachers recently returned and made me very happy by telling me that you are faithful and that you live according to the truth. I could have no greater joy than to hear that my children are following the truth. And he goes, Sweet. Gaius is getting after it. What's he doing that's following the truth? He says, Dear friend, you're being faithful to God when you care for the traveling teachers who pass through, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church here, of your loving friendship. And, and so this is really kind of the central issue of this letter. That in this time, in the like twilight of the first century of the church, um, there's these people going out and they're teaching Christ. They're the missionaries, right? There are these itinerant instructors of the way of Jesus, and, and they really rely on Christian homes along the way. And Gaius apparently has the resources, he has the size of house to bring them in, to take care of them, and send them out even though they're strangers to him. Like, he doesn't know who they are, but they show up and they have this commonality of Jesus, and that's what I love about it. It's like, there is no real stranger in the Christian family. It's somebody you don't quite know yet, but you're going to find out who they are, and then you're going to realize they're a brother and sister. And, and it's the same thing here. So Gaius opens the house, they come in, it's all awesome, but Gaius also knows to ask questions about how do you understand Jesus, because John has instructed that in Second John and First John. So if they come and they go, we're teaching on behalf of Christ, the God-man Christ. God who came in human form for us, bled, died, rose, and guys would be like, awesome, you're legit. If they were coming in and saying, ah, Jesus wasn't a man, he was only God, he was not this and that, then guys would know, like, okay, well, then I don't give you safe haven. But, but Gaius knows how to measure this out. He's been listening, attentive to the other messages of John, and so from this he's very faithful. But he's faithful in the face of a burden. And the burden starts to emerge in verse 6. When John says, please continue providing for such teachers in a manner that pleases God. For they are traveling for the sake of the name, which is interesting. You never see Jesus or Christ come up in 3 John, which is kind of pointing us in the direction why we don't think it's a theological problem as much as the relational problem that John is dealing with. You just see this kind of nod to the name. But they're traveling for the sake of the name. And they accept nothing from people who are not believers. Why? Because they're trying to reach them, right? He says, so we ourselves should, should support them so that they can uh, be partners as, or we can be partners with them as they teach the truth. And of this, I wrote to the church about this, right? So, so just real quick here. It's weird when you go, okay, why would he need to say, please continue doing this thing? Like, why go out of the way? And then the other part is, what does he mean I previously wrote a letter to the church Because here's the thing We don't have 4th John 
We don't have 2.5 John and then 3 John. Like, like th- th- there was this reality that there was something that John wrote that was not handed to us. It doesn't seem that he's talking about 2 John. It, the, the, the context is very, very different, right? And so we go, well, what happened there? Did, did he send a letter to Gaius' church? And in, in doing that, did somebody actually co-opt that letter? Did they take it, not read it to the church, not reveal the apostle's heart for the church? Well, possibly, because of what he says. I wrote to the church about this, but Diotrephes, which I, I always think about Seinfeld with Newman. It's like that. Diotrephes, who loves to be the leader, refuses to have anything to do with us. And so, if John is the mentor and Gaius is the minion, then Diotrephes is the megalomaniac. Sticking with our M words here, all right? Dude's on an ego trip, right? He has delusions of grandeur. He's obsessed with power, right? That seems to be this guy. And so, like I said earlier, I'm not certain that Diotrephes is a heretic. I just think he's a jerk, all right? Which is problematic. It is a serious issue in the context of what they're trying to accomplish here. Because what he's not doing is he's not being a true leader. Because a true leader says, you know what, it's not about me. It's about Christ and kingdom and calling and commission. And I go ahead to help everybody behind to be everything Christ wants them to be. But that's not what this dude's doing. He's like, I want to be first. I want power. I want control. I want what I want. And these people do what they do to serve my wants. That's why when John says, you know, he, um, he loves to be the leader, it literally means he wants to put himself first. Which is interesting, because what did Jesus say about being first? He says, if you want to be first, you're going to be last. But, but if you really want to be first in the kingdom, you got to be last. Right? So it's a total paradigm shift, but this guy's not on board with the shift. And then on top of that, he refuses to interact or work through the issues with John. So in that sense, the game of telephone that's underway was not the way John wanted it. John's like, Diotrephes, let's talk, dude. We're not on the same page. Why are we not on the same page? Why are you fighting the policies that we're trying to put in place for traveling missionaries to find refuge as they're going about? And I don't know what's driving Diotrephes. We don't get his side of the story. We don't get to read it. I don't know if he had a problem with John. I don't know if he was overprotective. I don't know if it's just his ego. I don't know what it is. But whatever it is, it's ramping up the tension. And so John says, when I come to your all's church, I will report some of the things that he is doing and the evil accusations that he's making against us. And not only does he refuse to welcome the traveling teachers, he also tells others not to help them. And when they do help, he puts them out of the church. And so you get the feel that it's like spurs and chaps and pistols at high noon. Like, the apostles rolling into town, and it's going to be a showdown, right? And in that, we see that, again, the issue is relational. It's disagreement. Um, If anything, it's not that Diotrephes is perhaps teaching falsehoods. It's just that he's not practicing brotherly love. He's not doing the things that you should do with a fellow believer to resolve problems and conflict. He's not on that page. In fact, if anything, what's he doing? He's making baseless statements about the apostles. He's slandering them. John literally in Greek says, it's nonsense what he's saying. But he's saying stuff to buttress his position. And he refuses to intake those who are traveling. He refuses to outfit them for a further journey. 
He tells everybody in the church, man, you don't open your home to those people. And if they do, Gaius, the dude bringing everybody in, he's going to give you the right foot of fellowship straight out the door. Right? He's going to boot you for just doing this hospitable thing. What I realize from this is that Diotrephes is the OG of abusive leaders. He's the original gangster, man. This fool knows exactly what he's doing. And, 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 and man, it's like, we've seen throughout Christian history when this happens, right? So it's kind of like I was thinking about, like, before there was, like, Bill Hybels, before there was James McDonald, before there was Mark Driscoll, before there was, you know, you pick your person or group, Hillsong, Southern Baptist Convention, any of the abuses that you see, well, man, there was Diotrephes, the thug. And it's the reminder that when religion becomes toxic, when religious leaders make it all about them, it destroys everything. Witness, effectiveness, relationships, it just wipes things out. And what's amazing about this sometimes, too, and I've just seen it over my 30 years of pastoral ministry, so oftentimes the abuse is connected to this idea of defending truth. Like, I'm defending the truth so I can treat you like crap. Right? And, and, and truth should not be a weapon in that sense. Truth is meant to heal the world. Jesus is the truth that comes to rescue, redeem, and save. And I'm not saying we shouldn't debate things. We shouldn't even at times divide about things. I'm going to talk about that in a second. I'm just saying that there should be this sense of, man, when we are defending truth, we must equally be defending love. And Diotrephes just doesn't care about the loving component. He's just defending what he thinks is right or proper or good or his, whatever his framework is. And he's clearly wrong. But he's just going out swinging. He's not trying to really come to any proper consensus on this topic. And so, he must be looking and going, you know what, John? You said we shouldn't house heretics, and we're not sure who is and isn't heretics. We house nobody. We're not letting anybody in. Anybody risks that in our church, we're going to kick them out, right? So perhaps he's just taking to an extreme what John intended for moderation. I don't really know. I don't know the story. I don't have the background. But it's clear um, he's failing to do this love component, right? He's overcautious, overcritical, overreactive, overinflated, and he's certainly over the line at this point. He's over the line, and he's outside of God's best blessing and, and best for that church, and certainly for the relationships involved. Now, as I was thinking about this, there's like teaching the letter, which is what I've been seeking to do, but then in this, I, I, I couldn't help but kind of get out of it a little bit just to go, wait, again, what's going on here is what happens when relationships sour? What happens when you're not on the same page? You're not communicated, whether, be, whether because you're just not communicating well or you, you refuse to communicate with somebody that you should. Whatever it is, there's this risk involved in relationships and communications. And, and so with that, I'm like, man, maybe we should stop and just think about that, right? This friendship breakdown or this network breakdown? What are ways that we can mitigate that even in our own lives? Because here's the deal. We all suffer from a relational breakdown with somebody at some point. A kid, a spouse, a friend, a neighbor, a co-worker, right? We, we've all been in the place of either a John or a Diotrephes, right? Like, I know I have. I've been both. I, I failed in, in being a Diotrephes in my own life sometimes when it comes to relationships and not wanting to interact or not wanting to solve it or whatever else. And so from that, I'm like, hey, man, we're going to do a little sidebar for just a second here. Because again, they're in the thick of it. And it's like, if you're in the thick of it, how do you approach fixing in the thick of it? And so if you are taking notes with us, 
It's all about how to navigate relational breakdowns. And, and while we could say a lot about this, I'm just going to give you three stepping stones, simple basic ideas. We go, man, I want to make sure I'm kind of going one to two to three when I have a relational breakdown with somebody. Here's the first, the motive. And the motive when we're going to deal with stuff is we need to focus on doing good versus being right. That the heart is to do good more than I want to prove I'm right. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't a time for right and wrong. I'm, uh, that's, I don't think that. I'm talking again about a motivation, right? B because what we don't want to do is walk into it and say, my job to try to heal this relationship is prove you're wrong and I'm correct. Because that sets a tone, right? That's going to put a temperament to the discussion. Instead, you're like, no, I want to do good in this broken thing because I know it's a bad situation, and I want to bring as much good to bear on this bad thing as I possibly can because I want to move it toward healing, and so as we tackle hard conversations and broken relationships, we got to remember they're not debates to be won or points to be scored, grievances to be aired, or ideas to be ridiculed. What we want to do is we want to come and say, I'm going to be as Jesus-like as I can to this person that I feel is like a jerk face to me right now. I want to be Jesus. Like, I don't want to let myself get in the way. My emotions get in the way. My ego get in the way, which is incredibly hard. It's incredibly hard. But I love what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. He says, bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. And don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. I always love to say I know less than half of everything. I got to remember that in all circumstances. Right? I know less than half of everything of why I'm in a broken relationship with somebody. I need to find out. Verse 17, never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. It's easy when we're hurt or discouraged or distrusting or misunderstood or angry or critical or frustrated, whatever it is. It's easy again to think we know it all, Right? And then from that, our own frustrations begin to overtake us in the context of the thing. But we want to remember when we have these kinds of conflicts with people or relational breakdowns, this is an opportunity for our growth. This is an opportunity for us to resist our most negative us in the midst of that, right? By doing good. By, as Paul said, blessing them, praying for them, being sad with them, laughing with them, Learn from them. Like, when you sit down and you need to work this through, actually learn where they're coming from. I'll tell you what gets me in trouble, and I bet many of us in trouble, is we go into things and we have assumptions, right? We have assumptions on what they think, how they feel, what's driving this whole breakdown, and, and we need to kind of lean in like, okay, I might be assuming a lot. So, so inform me. Help me to see your position. Be honorable. Be peacemaking. Be good. Do good. And seek their good. Because all conflict is an opportunity to kind of conquer our ego, practice love, and make good the priority in the name of Christ. Like, that's what we get to do. Right? And I know it's hard. It's hard. I've been there. I've struggled with this one sometimes. But that's the first step. I've got to come with that motive. Well, how do we ex kind of display this? How do we execute it for our lives? Well, that's the second thing. That's the method. 
and be proactive in communion Yes, a made-up word that I did today. Communion that assumes the best until something else is confirmed. See, I, I use this word because if you look up communion in the dictionary, the second definition is often uh, what we do with bread and wine once a month as a church. But the first is literally the sharing or exchanging of intimate thoughts and feelings. Right? And this is what we want to do with a person. In other words, when we sit down to try to heal a broken relationship, our job is not simply to talk. Our job is to listen, to engage, to hear their heart and not just their words, to ask questions. You said this. Is this what you mean by this? It's so hard to not be reactive in the moment, but that's really what we have to do is say, I really want to connect with you because at the end of the day, I am not against you. And I certainly don't desire to be against you. I want to connect with you, so help me get it. I'm not going to think the worst of you until you've given me a really great reason to think the worst. You've been very, very clear with the worst. And they go, okay, then that, it is what it is. But until I know that, I want to think the best. In fact, Solomon gives this great advice in Proverbs 18. He says, haughtiness goes before destruction, but humility precedes honor. Again, so if I go into a conversation with somebody where we're broken down and my position is I'm smart, they're dumb, I'm right, they're wrong, I know more, they know less, I'm coming in proud, coming in hot, right? And so they need to be humble. Verse 13, spouting off before listening to the facts is both shameful and foolish. And if we spout off before the facts, what can happen? We can damage their human spirit, right? We can crush their spirit if we're really not trying to pay attention, listen, and understand. Which is why then he says in verse 15, intelligent people are always ready to learn. Their ears are open for knowledge. Honestly, I can tell of times where I've gone into a meeting with somebody and, and I knew exactly the story. I knew exactly where they had failed. I knew exactly their problem. And I crushed them. I absolutely crushed them. In my pride, I'm so much more in tune. I'm so much in tune with the Holy Spirit. I so much know what your problems are, and I can just poof, detonate. It's terrible. It's terrible. And maybe you've been on the receiving end of that, where you're like, they don't understand me. They didn't get me. They just blame me. They just condemn me. That's where we have to have a much more nuanced approach with humility, curiosity, inquiry, openness, and good faith effort, effort to say, I want to to heal this and hear you and be made right with you. Jesus calls us to as much in Matthew chapter 5. You've heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. And if you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I will tell you that even if you're angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. So our anger and our murderous hearts are kind of intertwined. He says, so if you're presenting a sacrifice to the altar at the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave it right there. Stop your worship, right? Stop your worship and go to that person, right? Go be reconciled to that person and then come back and offer your sacrifice to God. See, that then takes us to the third little stepping stone, which is the mark. The mark we want to hit. If sin is to miss the mark, then obedience is to hit the mark. And what's the mark we want to hit? The restoration of the relationship or establishment of compassionate yet clear boundaries. Which you maybe didn't see that last part coming. But it's important, right? Because here's the thing. If you rekindled a relationship, awesome. Awesome. That's, that's like the highest thing we want to all hit, right? But sometimes differences are too great. Wounds are too deep. 
conviction or conscience is at an impasse, and so you need to set a boundary with that relationship. But here's what I want you to hear me with right now. If there's anything else you you like, I've been like checking the scores or whatever, but right now I want you to hear something. This is the thing I want you to hear. In setting a boundary, we never want to set it in anger or in punishment, in bitterness, pride, or retaliation. Because that's not really a boundary. That's just saying, I'm done with you. Boundaries are intentional, right? They're, they're different, right? So we, we set boundaries in love and in compassion because we're trying to do good to the relationship as best as we can. Like, I don't want to stay interlocked with you in a battle that isn't serving either one of us. So in love, I'm setting a boundary, not because I hate you, but because actually I love you enough to not continue to fight with you and argue with you and feel bad about you and you about me. So we'll just kind of create this healthy boundary. But here's the thing about a boundary. Not only does it need to be compassionate, it also needs to be clear. The person that you set the boundary with needs to know, this is why I'm setting the boundary, and this is what the boundary is. If it's vague, if it's unspoken, it still leaves them wondering, like, they just hate me, right? So you have to have enough courage to say, here's the boundary I'm setting. So it might be like, mom and dad, we love coming over to visit with the kids, but every time we come, we get into arguments about politics and about this and about that, and we clearly don't see the world the same way. We get it. So here's the deal, Mom and Dad. We want to come over and visit, but we can't continue to have those conversations. It's just too destructive and too hurtful. So if we can stop, we'll come over and visit. If you feel like we need to talk about it every time, I'll just call you on the phone, and we'll leave the whole rest of the family. Because we have to set a boundary. It's become too toxic. But we love you, and we don't want to keep arguing with you. That, that, that's a boundary. Or it might be like, you know, you, you go out with a group of friends, and you tend to be the one that they kind of mock or make fun of or make you the butt of the joke, so they're just kind of harsh with you. And you go, man, when we're out as a group, you tend to do this toward me, and it really hurts. And so I love you. I love hanging out with you. But if that's going to continue, I don't want to continue to be in a space that does that. So I'm setting a clear and hopefully compassionate boundary. See, in boundaries, the big idea is they're not meant to be punitive. They're not. They're meant to be protective, but not punitive. And then, uh, hopefully, from that spirit, it'll even be restorative in the course of time. Because then the person you set the boundary with can realize, like, oh, okay, maybe it's on me to maybe adjust my behavior so that we can remove this, this boundary. So boundaries are okay. And the reason I say that is because in the case of John to Gaius, he's setting a boundary. Or at least he's telling Gaius to set a boundary with Diotrephes. He says, dear friend, don't let this bad example influence you. Follow only what is good. Remember that those who do good prove that they are God's children, and those who do evil prove that they don't really know God. Now again, I'm not certain, and this is just my take, I'm not certain what John's trying to say is Diotrephes is evil and unsaved. And I don't think he's going, I think he's giving kind of a proverbial idea at the end. Like, you know, like, hey man, we all want to be on the trajectory of doing good. Now maybe he does think Diotrephes is like some unsaved evil guy. I, I, I'm not positive on that. And, and the only reason I come up a little short on that is because, again, I've been in Christianity a long time, and I've met a lot of Diotrephes in life. And yet I'm not ready to say that they're all just like hell-bound, not really saved Christians, you know? I'm just like, people can be difficult. People have seasons of difficulty. People can be proud. or Like, we're all in journey and process to this. But it is clearly wrong. And what Diotrephes is doing is wrong. And so from this, there's got to be a boundary. Like, dude, just watch out. Don't get sucked into his, his policies. Who knows? I sometimes wonder if maybe Diotrephes finally went like, oh, yeah, 
I'm wrong. We don't know anything about his story. We don't even know the church he was a part of or where it was at. But I hope, I hope that he and John were rekindled. I hope that he realized that, man, I'm being too protective, too arrogant, too full of myself. I mean, that's my, my hope for him. Now, as the story closes, kind of closes in a weird way, we've seen the faithfulness of Gaius, the focus of John, but now we see the fidelity of our fourth and final character, Demetrius. Demetrius is the model. Demetrius seems to be the guy that's going to carry the letter to Gaius. And so from that, John wants Demetrius, or wants Gaius to know that, hey man, everybody speaks highly of Demetrius, as does the truth. We ourselves can say the same for him, and we know we speak for the truth. And so what's cool about this is, again, he's the letter carrier. He's bringing John's message. Gaius is going to take him in. Diotrephes is going to want to kick him out. And it puts everybody in an awkward spot, right? But in this, John doesn't say, hey, Gaius, just take my word for it. No, he's like, man, there's multiple witnesses to who this guy is. Right? The truth testifies he's legit. The church testifies he's legit. I testify he's legit. And everyone else that knows him is like, this guy is the real deal. In other words, this is a man of integrity. And so John handpicks this man who is, who clearly lives it to go and bring the letter and hopefully bring some, some healthier dynamic to whatever's going on in the church. Here's the thing I think about with this. Integrity is key to kingdom advancement, right? Like the reason John, I think, highlights this, and I think why it's important is we know it absolutely matters. And more than ever, like more than ever, when it comes to church ministries and church leaders and church denominations and everything else, what we all see, what we all know is that there has been just story after story after story, and it's all about the lack of integrity at times. And in that, what suffers? The reputation of Christ anybody's openness to the gospel, right? If they just keep seeing abuse after abuse after abuse, they're like, man, you don't look like a changed people. And I know there are many people that are, in fact, changed by the Spirit and changed by Christ, and we need to offset these bad examples. And remember that integrity above all counts when it comes to kingdom advancement. In fact, I love what Solomon says. My child, never forget the things that I've taught to you. Store up my commands in your heart. Never let loyalty and kindness leave you. Tie them around your neck as a reminder. Write them deep in your heart. Then you will find favor with both God and people, and you will earn a good reputation. Reputations are earned, right? That's the thing that sticks out to me. And I go back and go, well, what earns a good reputation? Being faithful to what God has called us to, being loyal, and being kind. If we just wanted any marching order for today, that's it. You know what? When we think about truth and love, what it means is we love God and people so much we want to obey the truth. And we obey the truth with such tenderness and kindness and loyalty that, man, it should be compelling for people. They see transformation. They go, I want transformation. See, that should be the space. That's what is seen in Demetrius. And hopefully, man, Diotrephes will see this in Demetrius too. I hope he did. Because a good reputation is more valuable right, than costly perfume. The day you die is more important than the day that you were born. Why? Because on the day you die, everybody talks about the legacy you left. And so we want to leave the right legacy. Then John concludes, I have much more to say, but I don't want to write it with pen and ink, for I hope to see you soon, and then we will talk face to face. Peace be with you. I'm sure that meant a lot to guys where everything feels chaotic. And then he says, your friends here send you their greetings. Even though you're feeling the heat, you got friends elsewhere that love you, thinking about you, praying for you. Please give my personal greeting to each of our friends there as well.
Let's pray together. Jesus, your people are your people. And your people can sometimes be messy. We thank you that in your grace you deal with our mess. But we also pray that in your grace you will help us to shape and to shine like you. Right? You talk about that in the Sermon on the Mount, that, that we're the light of the world, we're the salt of the earth. I pray that we are faithful to do the things you've called us to do, the good things, so people can see those things and then glorify you in heaven. We have need of you, want of you, and we desire to be used of you. So help us to do that, even when it comes to being change agents to broken relationships, that we will be sort of the, the wise voices of our culture that doesn't react, name call, whatever else, but rather we will be peaceful and settled and seek to bring you to that environment. Also, for anybody in the room or watching online that isn't a Christian, right, doesn't follow Jesus, but you want to follow him today, it's a prayer. Jesus, I've gone against you. I've sinned. I've been living life my own way. I've not been in relationship with you, and that certainly then affects my other relationships. I want to be in relationship with you so that it shapes all of my relationships. You make that your prayer and your way. We want to know. We have a tile on the app. You let us know you made that decision or a phone number that will be on the screen. You can text that and say, I decided to follow Jesus. We'd be thrilled to know that. Thrilled. As you start this journey. Jesus, we thank you again for your grace and faithfulness. And we look to you now to really mobilize us to go into this world and make a difference for you as we stand divided in your name.